Well, good afternoon, and uh, apologies for being sort of late at my own party, as it were, but uh, I've been rushing around trying to get Soros off the premises. <laughs> um, uh, but um, we're delighted to uh, welcome Andrew uh, Cheng to hear us uh, this evening. Uh, Andrew and I um, go way back, as they say, because we were uh, opposite numbers as regulators. Uh, he was chair of the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission when I was chair of the FSA here, and therefore we uh, had to go on the world sort of travelling circus uh, of uh, IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, uh, which used to meet in the most exotic locations. But that allowed me to gain a great appreciation uh, and respect for Andrew's ability to think about what is going on in financial markets, um, but to do it in a way which is extremely well informed by the practicalities. Uh, Andrew is uh, as good on the long-term tectonic plate shifting of financial markets as he is on the nefarious practices of Chinese brokers in Kowloon. Um, <laughs> which, uh, and to have someone who is able to understand these two uh, dimensions of life, which are linked in important ways, uh, is, I think, uh, a great attribute. Um, since he left the uh, SFC, he's had a bit more time to think about these uh, issues, has written a fascinating book about the last uh, Asian financial crisis, only just finished in time for the next one, um, but uh, he's also been working for the China Banking Regulatory Commission, where we actually sit together on the International Advisory Board, but uh, Andrew chairs that board and has now taken on a more substantive role as the senior advisor to the CBRC, whereas the advisory board on which we both sit is uh, a more episodic engagement. So there are a few people who have a better view of what's been going on in financial markets in Asia than Andrew, both from his perspective in uh, Hong Kong, uh, from his retreat in Penang in Malaysia, uh, and also who's now spending quite a lot of his time uh, in China with a privileged view within the Chinese system uh, of what's going on there. So uh, that's why I'm particularly pleased that he is here to deliver the next in this series of lectures uh, sponsored by Standard Chartered in the name of Pat Gillen. I'm delighted to see uh, Pat and his wife here this evening. Um, and so without more ado, and I won't even read out the title because I'm sure Andrew's going to. It probably looks better in Chinese. It's probably just four characters, is it? Um, <laughs> Finance in East Asia from crisis to integration, challenges of second generation reforms. Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Howard. Uh, it's a really great honor uh, you know, to be invited to these hallowed halls of uh, LSE. Um, I think. Uh, uh, for me to uh, come and deliver the Sir Patrick Gillum uh, lecture is, 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 I think, personally a great honor. Um, uh, Howard is uh, somebody whom I've always admired and uh, respected and, and sought you know, uh, advice from when I was working on the SFC. Um, Hong Kong went through a very, very difficult transition. 
And I think, you know, it was, uh, you know, Howard's great support uh, from when even from the Bank of England and the FSA that gave us great courage to make that uh, transition. I'm also very um, uh, sort of awed uh, in the presence of all, all, all this intellectual power here in this room, particularly, you know, uh, I, someone I call my mentor, I think, uh, in, you, know, you know, Professor Charles Goodhart. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm in, in, in Chinese, you would say that uh, you give something, you you give it a trepidation and, and, and shame. So I'm do, being, doing the Chinese modesty bit. <laughs> uh, now, uh, I'm going to try to try and paint very quickly within 45 minutes. That's my time that I have available. About, in, a, in essence, the lessons of the Asian crisis, the challenges in the, in the future. And, and, and I'm going to paint this very broadly. Uh, and I will sketch the details because uh, from my work in, uh, uh, you know, in Malaysia, uh, in Hong Kong, when I was at World Bank, I worked, you know, throughout Asia, uh, and now, now recently, more recently in, 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 in China, uh, uh, I have tried to understand what are the real challenges. So uh, let me start. Uh, and I just want to say also that uh, you know the views that I expressed today, like all good securities regulators, I can never forget that all the views are personal, you know, and not attributed to anybody. Now the contents are fairly straightforward. I'll very quickly go through the Asian financial landscape. I'll talk about the, the weaknesses of the Asian financial system that created the, to a, you know, led to the crisis, and we, we haven't totally solved all of, all of them. Then, you know, a perspective about how we will evolve from this, and then looking at the future, I'll do a, a, a scenario uh, analysis, and then try to think through what are the challenges of the second generation reforms. I want to start off with this quote by Professor Ray Huang, uh, who wrote this uh, brilliant book on China and macro history. It says, you know, as the world enters the modern era, most countries under internal and external pressure need to reconstruct themselves by substituting the mode of governance rooted in agrarian experience with a new set of rules based on commerce. He was trying to explain how China never went through the Industrial Revolution and how the West overtook China. And he says this is easier said than done. The renewal process could affect the top and bottom layers, and inevitably it's necessary to reconstitute the institutional links between them. So it's a, it's going, it's a, it, what he really meant is that it's going to be a huge institutional overhaul in order to move from what Danny Roderick would say from a poverty stage to a middle income stage and to break through that you know, middle income to a, 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 a rich or international a global arena. You know, that, that transformation is, is, uh, is uh, going to be extremely painful and very, very difficult. Now, we've seen Japan do this, but in my personal view, you know, Japan you know, has paid a huge price for not managing that transition very, very well. Uh, so very quickly, and I'm going to run through, uh, you know, basically, Asian miracle has been a demographic story. It's, it's pretty good governance, a lot of attention to education, good geography, Right, rising with a young population into a world in which you know there's Pax Americana, uh, uh, you know, sort of free trade, uh, the, the good period of stability. A, the Japanese seized the idea of you know 
manufacturing and exports to be the, the, the lead story. And then, you know, in the early 60s and, and, and 70s, they rose very, very rapidly. The, the 7 to 8% growth that China sees today. Uh, and then as the population uh, begins to uh, peak around uh, 1980 uh, and begins to age, this is the share of the working population, uh, you know, Japanese growth then slowed down very, very rapidly. You are now seeing the blue, the blue line, China, going through this very rapid young population. The average, the median age of a Chinese worker is 33 at the moment. And India is probably around 26, 27. So India will catch up later, and it's much steadier, but because of the one-child policy, China will age, you know, uh, fairly fast. Now, the explanation, the, 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 the Asian explanation of its growth is the classic Japanese flying geese theory, now which the West has not accepted very, very well because they said it's just described. So, so what? What, what is the, 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 the thought process that went through this? And in, in essence, it's, it's about Japan being the lead geese, going through the garment stage, the low value added, and then going to steel, popular TV, video, high HTV technology, all move up the knowledge and value added curve. And of course, it was followed by the four tigers, you know, Taiwan, Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And then when they got expensive, you know, the cheap labor stuff was shifted to the ASEAN four. And today, the latecomers would include China. And as China also begins to become, you know, more expensive, you know, this is being shed to the new giant like Vietnam, uh, Bangladesh, and, and uh, in India. Uh, but India has already moved ahead on the software area. Now. A key issue about this was that because Japan created the, Asia, the global supply chain, the, the key and the main customers in effectively the United States, under this Pax Americana, the dollar was the key currency. But Japan had also ambitions about the yen being a, a major currency, and uh, the minute the, 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 the euro rose, and uh, Japan went into the bubble because of the uh, very rapid, you know, uh, uh, increase in the exchange rate, plus the bad management on the uh, land supply side and monetary policy mistakes and banking supervision, etc. The whole lot, you know, it went through 17, 18 years of adjustment, and as some of you know, it hasn't finished yet. Now, uh, two, three years ago, I, you know, uh, I thought about the Chinese uh, reforms, and I wrote a paper called China's Six Degrees of Transition. Uh, and these six transition issues are demography, which I've just explained. Wealth is moving from a poor uh, economy to a middle-income economy. It's about globalization. It has opened up from a totally closed, almost totally closed economy 30 years ago, you know, to one of the largest trading nations in the world. I mean, if you add its exports and incomes, it's, it's for, a, for a growing large economy like that. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, the, and then it's about a knowledge economy. It's about hardware uh, economy towards a more, you know, sort of software knowledge-based uh, uh, economy. It's about moving from plan to socialist market economy, uh, from from exports to domestic consumption, and the governance. And this is the last item, which uh, is, the, is, is the whole theme that I want to concentrate on. It's, it's, it's from an owner to a regulator of a market economy, and that. That, that shift because of a, a, a state-only, I mean, a state-planned economy is essentially a social economy, essentially state-owned. And how do you differentiate or separate the conflicts of interest between the owner, 
you know, and a regulator is a very difficult job. Now, the Asian landscape, um, a lot of you are very familiar, so I'm going to very quickly, you know, sort of uh, run through this. Basically, Asia went through the crisis 10 years ago. Uh, I'll, I'll describe the issues later, but, you know, they've recovered, um, and they're enjoying very robust growth. I mean, it's, you know, the, and, and, and a lot of this is, is due to the rise of China uh, and, 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 and India. That growth, which basically was paused by the, uh, uh, halted by the Asian crisis and then resumed, uh, has created, the, you know, its current account growth with a vengeance. And if you start looking at uh, Asian uh, economies, even like Malaysia, they're still having 7 8% you know, current account surpluses. Amazing, considering that you know, they're, 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 they've, they've done that for, for quite a number of years. Uh, and of course, you know, with fast growth, the FDI has come back. And so they've, they've built up their massively their, their uh, uh, FX reserves, official reserves. And as a result of that, of course, you know, the, the massive reserves build up in East Asia. People tend to forget that that was basically swear. I mean, no uh, central banker in, uh, in, in Asia wanted to have a repeat of the Asian crisis, which basically didn't have enough foreign exchange to pay, you know, uh, pay, pay for the outflows. Um, so the, 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 the large, this is the uh, IMF data up to 2006 uh, uh, only, uh, I'm sorry, 2004 only, but essentially the red line is Japan, the yellow line is, uh, 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 I think, uh, Asia X Japan, and then the brown line is basically OPEC countries. So essentially, you know, Asia, Japan, I mean, China, Japan, plus uh, uh, OPEC countries is the mirror image of the, the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, current account uh, deficit. Now, what are the, what are the mistakes? And what, what has been done recently? Well, during the Asian crisis, was com- the, 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 most e- the greatest issue is about bad corporate governance. Essentially, Asia went through the, what was known famously known as double mismatch. Uh, uh, they borrow short, then long, sounds familiar. They borrow foreign currency, you know, invest in uh, local currency, and when the, the foreigners or whoever wanted to take the money out, central bank didn't have enough, so the currency collapsed. Meantime, the banking system was already fragile, and they went through a bubble as too much money went into Asia when the funds left both the portfolio funds as well as the banking loans uh, left, the system just you know, completely collapsed. So as a result, there was banking system consolidation. The number of banks in Asia have shrunk considerably. Lots more foreign, uh, foreign banks uh, coming in. But of course, there's still uh, the numbers are limited. Uh, the fiscal position has improved. The exchange rates have become more flexible. Uh, with a lot of persuasion from everybody, but I think everybody now understands that it is a matter of, uh, as we become rich, the Samuel Balasa effect will, 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 will arise, so you need to raise it, otherwise you get a big domestic bubble again. And Asian financial integration has increased, but it's very slow because of the historical rivalry between the, you know, Japan and China and, and some of the other East Asian uh, uh, economies. That, that rivalry is still uh, problematic. And whether we can get an integration between uh, uh, North Asia and South, Southeast Asia or North Asia, Southeast Asia, as well as India, South Asia, and then include uh, New Zealand and Australia, 
is still a completely open question. Now, the, the, the point that I think is quite interesting, of course, is that the, um, the rise of the Chinese and Indian financial markets will have very powerful impact on the uh, Asian markets. That power is staggering, I mean, if, if you think through it. I mean, the, 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 um, the market cap of the Chinese equity market was only $400 billion at the end of 2005, and it's, it's, it's leaped to $4.5 trillion, right? And the number of uh, uh, accounts of retail speculating in that market doubled in one year. And it's essentially now 138 uh, million accounts. Uh, the banking assets has now reached you know, 231% of GDP. The Indian market is the 10th largest. Very deep market you know, uh, has, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the banking assets are, are also doing well. The FX assets are just, you know, as you can see, almost uh, 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 what uh, 1.68 trillion already, and India's FX reserves are now 300. Considering that not more than 10 years ago, I think you know India was kind of struggling along with uh, with just shortages in, in foreign currency. Now, very quickly, uh, Asia is still basically a bank-dominated market. Only the last few years, equity financing outpaced the the credit side. There is still lack of, uh, uh, of depth in many uh, Asian capital markets. The, the bond market to GDP ratio for India and China is not more than 30%. And part of the reason is that uh, uh, the, 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 as I will try and explain, bond market developments turn out to be much tougher than people think. Um, the equity market is, is much more speculative than, than other markets because the retail side is very, very large and institutional development is not deep. So essentially, you know, Asia, uh, Asia's got half the world's population, but only a quarter of the equity market in, 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 by market cap size. The, the, the proportion of foreign uh, share in equity portfolio is still very, very low, although increasingly very large in Japan. Um, 60% of turnover in Japanese markets uh, in the Japanese market is accounted for by, by foreign, uh, uh, you know, uh, securities houses, uh, and the amount of uh, uh, the, what I call dynamic traders uh, trading in Asian markets really account for somewhere between 30 uh, to 50% today. Uh, the debt markets, as I said, is relatively shallow. The transactions cost, uh, this is a McKinsey table, uh, uh, basically shows that intermediation costs for the, the uh, uh, brokers in, in Southeast Asia are double those in the US and, and Europe. The banking intermediation cost uh, is, is also very high. Uh, basically, recapitalization of banks in, 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 uh, in Asia has done in two ways. Roughly half of it carve out all the bad loans and half of it allowing a very, very wide spread. Uh, and so now, given that, where do we go from here? Well, the Asian crisis, the, the core issue was the violation of the impossible trinity. Now, all of you economists here would understand this better. Essentially, it basically says, if you, know, if you have a choice of exchange control, the, the exchange rate or the monetary policy, you can't have your cake and eat it, uh, especially you know, if you have a, a full uh, open capital account. And basically, Asian, particularly those, currents, those markets, such as Thailand, in, you know, tried to do that. Uh, you know, initially, you had a, a uh, high because there was a lot of money coming in to chase what was 
now recognized as the carry trade. You borrow from cheap cur uh, currencies that have very low interest rates and you invest in Asian currencies that have high interest rates. The central bankers tried to raise interest rates to try and you know, cool down market economies. All they got was more, a ton of money, a uh, huge domestic bubble, and eventually that deflated when the money left. Now, there were good institutional reasons for that uh, bubble. Uh, globalization, technology, financial innovation, and loose monetary policy, uh, high level of savings. If you listen to all this, you recognize what's in some sense happening today. There, you know, all this created the conditions of uh, you know, bubbles in the stock and, and, and property markets. But at the same time, you know, the Asian markets are very, very strange. It, 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 the institutional side of it was not well, well developed. And, and uh, if you, you, you know, when I was in Hong Kong, somebody asked me, you know, why can't these markets with so much savings develop much better? Well, if you come to London, you, you want to seek an institutional investors, probably four to 5,000 easy you know, institutional investors you can go to. You go to Hong Kong, you go to the Jockey Club, you go to you know, sort of the Mandatory Provident Fund, you go to you know, a couple of others, that's it, right? And that's already Hong Kong. And you go to Singapore, there's a CPF, Palasek, GIC, you know, and today there's a little bit more, but still very, very shallow. You go to Malaysia, is the EPF, you know, uh, and a few you know, uh, mutual, mutual funds that grew recently. It's very shallow. What drives those markets? Huge retail. I mean, you know, the, 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 the retail sort of still largely drives this, and only in Hong Kong and, and Singapore, to some extent, uh, is, is the, the uh, foreign uh, institutional traders uh, have established and, and they, they, they do a little bit better. But the retail, the high element of retail makes this market much, much more volatile, you know, uh, and, and, and sentiment driven. And to some extent, they've been given choices. They, they, they're kind of like, you know, uh, 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 I may say so, kids in a candy store. I mean, you, you, you liberalize very, very rapidly. They don't know what to choose. And so, you know, the, 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 the problems that they could be buying, you know, it's very, very rumor-driven, right? And, and they could be led very easily up the garden path. Now, the Asian crisis, I just put two, 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 two you know, sort of common elements together. You know, Asian crisis, you blame about excess liquidity, yes, large capital flows, yes, asset bubbles, yes, excess leverage, yes, financial liberalization, yes, you know, lack of transparency, yes, inadequate supervision, moral hazard, plead guilty. But you look on the other side, on the, on the subprime, similar issues occur, except that the excess leverage was in the household sector, right? And the excess, you know, the, the financial liberalization was very much on these new products, that now today we understand, uh, you know, we didn't understand the risks very, very well. Now, was there moral hazard? You know, you know, I may be wrong, but I think that you know the idea of a green stamp, you know, put does exist, and this is the area of controversy. The differences lie in the policy responses. You know, in the IMF, the policy response initially was to raise interest rates and also cut fiscal expenditure. And of course, you know, uh, today, you know, you, you, you do it differently. So I thought, you know, after thinking about the impossible trinity, I really think the issue is about the policy impossible trinity. You either choose about quantitative uh, uh, tools or, or price tools. And Asia has essentially, over the last few years, been essentially a price taker. They, they take the global price. They, they, they've not yet been able to dominate that price. 
they try to keep you know sort of uh, rates stable and then use quantitative exchange controls or you know sort of credit controls to try and get get it right but the danger of course that if you try to control both prices and quantity the risks blow out and so what was basically seeing very very much so that something needs to be done there and how you juggle that is very very crucial now the subprime crisis i want you know the this is over, overly analyzed now, but to me, my, 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 my point is that the subprime crisis is the, uh, the Asian crisis, the classic traditional bank crisis plus a currency crisis. The subprime crisis is, the, is, in my view, is the first crisis of the derivative uh, market in the 21st century. And it's a crisis of, as we all know now, it's a, originally to distribute model. So you may say that this is the, the Asian crisis was an old, uh, retail bank crisis and the subprime crisis is a wholesale bank crisis, if I may sort of put it very, and, and, and it, it, you know, products evolved. Now, the, 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 why do I say it's a derivative market crisis? Because finance is a derivative of the real sector. As you know, that there's a relationship between the derivative and the underlying is through leverage, you know, uh, uh, you know, and all these, you know, complex equations that you know much better than me. But if the underlying gets into trouble, the derivatives become much more volatile because of the leverage. And the more layers of, of, of derivative, the more opaque it becomes, and people don't understand the risks. And eventually, uh, it's very, this is very easy for me to uh, explain to the Chinese. Uh, I use the Chinese phrase called, in the 36 stratagems, the best stratagem is to run. And so, you know, when, when you don't understand all this, everybody ran, ran for cover, refused to buy, and the liquidity simply, you know, uh, seized up. Now, how did, you know, this get, we get into this situation? Well, essentially, if you, the more I thought about it, the more I realized the West is very open to innovation. In Asia, we're much more conservative about innovation. We actually regulate products. You know, in the West, you know, the regulators basically say product is for the market. You issue whatever product you like. You make money is yours. You lose money is yours, right? Now, you know, Asian regulators tend to be, and during the Asian crisis, there was this very famous phrase, Asian regulators over-regulate and under-enforce. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, the, 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 the problem about enforcement is that it's, uh, it is very, very, very costly, and uh, particularly also if you're underpaid uh, uh, civil servants, uh, you know, you, you, you may be, you know, sort of, uh, you know, getting into political areas where, you know, you don't want to, and so basically the, the enforcement levels, you know, is not as strong as, as, as that, you know, in the West. But the, 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 the openness to the, the, the innovation is, to, is, is, is like using my, my own Hong Kong experience, which I learned to my bitter cost, because Hong Kong opened up to the gem market, which is very much like the A market here. Anybody can, you know, sort of be the, op open the floodgates. Anybody can IPO. And what do we get? A lot of fraud and shonky companies, right? So the precondition to a free market is actually very stringent, what we call back-end enforcement. And that's an issue that really, you know, need, you know, need, need to be, you know, uh, 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 thought through. I will now spend, you know, sort of two, three minutes to try and say I've, I've talked about the weaknesses of the Asian markets and the issues with the uh, subprime. Let me now paint a scenario. Now, it's very dangerous to predict anything, but 
the good thing about you know uh, you know coming to LSE is wonderful bookshops. I I could pick up a you know a recent book that I haven't seen is Angus Medicine's uh, you know pr- predictions of, uh, of global markets, and of course uh, he said by the you know sort of in 1830 uh, essentially uh, you know China India accounted for roughly as, even as today half the world's population. And uh, in those days, probably around 40 to 50 percent of world GDP. Uh, now, all these numbers are, are, are very difficult because you, you know what, what, what do you mean by PPP? What do you mean by those dollars? The calculations are, are difficult. But by you know sort of 1950, the proportion of GDP had declined very very sharply, uh, partly due to war, you know, uh, and, and all that. And now with this rapid you know rise of the Asian miracle again, fast growth. Where will it be, you know, sort of 10 years from now? So given the numbers that I had was 2006, I tried to very quickly look at what it would be like in 2016. For those of you who know, who, who, who read the uh, um, IMF uh, Global Financial Stability Report cover to cover like I do, uh, I do this to, to let, let me go to sleep. Um, but no, the, 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 it actually is a first-rate document. There is a t- table three which actually shows global financial assets to GDP. And essentially, what essentially it showed was that over the years, the ratio of leverage of financial assets to GDP has grown from 108% in 1980 to about 400% in 2006. But Asia's financial deepening, if we were to use the traditional financial assets, which is bank assets plus market cap, equity market cap plus bond uh, market value, uh, you, you, you exclude the derivative markets because the measurement of that is, is still controversial. Um, uh, Europe has the most financial deepening, around 540% of GDP. The United States is about 40, 450% of GDP. Uh, Japan is around 430% of GDP, but the rest of Asia is around 320% of GDP. Now, if you were to do a projection over 10 years using historical growth, right, what, what grew from 80 to, to 206, and then say the rate goes further, what does it come? Europe still comes out the number one, biggest in, 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 in size. Uh, this is the, uh, this is the, uh, the GDP sh- uh, share. Europe is still largest at 28%. The United States is 26 Asia, including Japan, is 24 The rest of the world is 22 Right? That's just pure you know, sort of projection, I mean, not, uh, not, a, not a forecast. Right? This is just to say, if it grew, what it's doing now, what does it come like? Now, then if you were to apply the same asset to GDP ratio, that's the financial deepening, uh, where would it be? Europe is still the largest, the United States is number two, and Asia will be number three. But now if you were to say, well, Asia's savings is growing very fast, and Asia begins to catch up in financial deepening, where will it be, right? This is a very quick scenario. It goes to show that, you know, roughly speaking, uh, 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 EU is still uh, uh, strong, but Asia would now begin to number two and catch up with the United States. This, this of course, you know, it's not a forecast, I repeat. It's all saying that, you know, American is a mature uh, market. The, the derivative side may grow much significantly but a traditional asset-GDP ratio maintains the same. And then if you were to say that if Asia as a block, I'm not making a prediction, as a block, 
is then, you know, uh, the exchange rate rises roughly 20%. And I'm just picking a number of the hat out. Where would that financial asset be? So essentially what I'm saying is that Asia's high savings rate will have a GDP effect, a financial deepening effect, and ultimately an exchange rate effect, right? If you add all these three up, you know, by 2006, you know, Asia, including Japan, just peep the EU, but or at least more or less equal, uh, and, and 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 the US alone will be will be smaller. But of course, you add in and the rest of the world, you know, uh, is, is, those calculations may be, may be completely wrong. But all 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 it says essentially is that Asia, with high savings, high growth, other things being equal, and with financial deepening, Asian currencies and Asian financial sector would be pretty important. But you notice, this was exactly what happened in 1990 when Japan made that prediction, right? And then Japan reversed. I mean, you know, the exchange rate you know, declined uh, uh, because of the, the bursting of the bubble. And it, it, it goes to show that if you really want to succeed as a financial center, it needs what I now call second-generation reforms. You really need to get your reforms in the macro side as well as the macroprudential side, so much of a different order that it will be a major challenge. Now, building this, this next second order, second generation reform is going to be much tougher. Why do I say this? Because the first generation reforms was, in a sense, the post-independence reforms when people were trying to build, people of my generation who were you know, educated in the West, went back home, and said, okay, we need to build these economies. There was, you know, you, you know so unity in terms of focus, build the nation, build the central banks, you know, build the markets. That's the easy part. Now that you become middle income, how do you get the kind of transparency, the accountability, you know, all this? It's a huge problem. And, you know, if you then you think about this, one of the because I, I, I've tried very hard to understand the Japanese, you know, sort of bubble uh, uh, lessons, is that if you allow, you know, if you, if, you, if you take the idea that you can adjust the exchange rate very, very fast when your institutions were not ready, you, you, you end up paying a very high price. Now, so therefore, my sort of uh, uh, take on this is that the Douglas North idea of you know, new institutional economics is the right path. It's, everything is path dependent. It's time irreversible. Uh, and you, 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 you gradually advance in what the Chinese call crossing the river by feeding the stones. Now, that's, uh, this is, uh, you know, the cliche that everybody says, you know, this must be explained, everything is about China. And, but it's not that simple. Crossing the, ri- crossing the river by feeding the stones is a methodology it's not crossing the, by randomly feeding the stones. Now, it's that methodology which I think a lot of people have not totally understood. You need to build the markets block by block, modularly. You know. and, and, and you need to understand that that block must, in a sense, the, the, the next stone that you, you, you put in place should be enable you to go to the next module the interconnectivity, the interoperability of this institutional building is very crucial. 
and you, you, you know, if, if you were to liberalize very fast before you understand this, especially if your population, your retail investors, your institutions do not understand all this, the very fast shock could actually send and destabilize the, the, the whole situation. So the, 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 you know, it, it is about knowledge intensity uh, of financial markets and how do you move this uh, right. Now, basically, the Asians have, 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 have more or less understood what you do. I mean, the, the, there's no fixed formula in this, but you liberalize trade, you know, then you liberalize manufacturing, then you gradually liberalize you know, commercial services, this distribution area, and finally, you liberalize you know, financial services. Now, you could argue that you could do you know, one or two before the others, but so far, you know, both India and uh, uh, China and uh, some of the other, you know, more, more, more sort of uh, cautious economies, that's the track that they, they take. The second issue, the point that I really want to make is that if you want to be a global player, you have to play by global rules. I mean, you cannot, you know, uh, uh, integrate globally by totally closing up your doors. Now, so how do you integrate, you know, means that you really need to take global standards. And I think, you know, this is where I think FSAPs and WTO rules are already in place. And I, I, the point that I want to make to a lot of people is that Asians have accepted the idea that they will play by global rules. The big debate is time, how much time is given. Now, the danger, of course, is that if that time is forever, it really means that you don't want to reform. But if you have a, a phased program, uh, actually, that phase program, exactly like what the Chinese have done by saying, oh, you know, 2006, uh, you know, sort of uh, WTO rules opened up the banking system. They, they have done so far. And, and then the next stage is what is the right area to open up in the capital markets area. And you also cannot integrate with the, the global markets without foreign partners. And I think this is very, 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 very crucial. Very quick point about financial integration uh, through regional initiatives. Immediately after the Asian crisis, there was this great big hoo-ha. Do we during the crisis we had this Asian Monetary Fund, you know, and then after this ASEAN Plus Three, the Chiang Mai Initiative, development of bond markets. The ADB, for example, is still pushing very, very hard to trying to develop this Asian bond markets with the Asian Asian bond online, you know, the, the, the bond indices, etc. All these are very important building blocks. But so far, it hasn't succeeded as well as uh, everybody had hoped. And I think, you know, very much it, this is uh, 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 all, all politics. Uh, and, but it, incrementally, it's actually moving much better than people think. Because, you know, there was a lot of debate about whether you should make the Asian market uh, either through a multilateral agreement or you do it to a bilateral trade agreement. Well, what, what Asians have done is to do the uh, spaghetti bowl or the, the, uh, the ramen bowl in which all the noodles are all tied up inter interlinks and eventually, I think out of this, Asians are beginning to realize we will have to multilateralize all these bilateral agreements. If you've got 153 bilateral free trade agreements, uh, bilateral free trade agreements you know, within Asia, sooner or later, the uh, multilateralization will occur. So I want to use two examples to, why, to say why these modular uh, issues uh, uh, are, are so critical. I used to think that, well, you know, we, 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 you know, we all agree that bond market should be done. 
I've worked in the World Bank five years. I've tried to build bond markets you know, in a number of countries, in Asia as well as in, uh, uh, elsewhere. And it has always turned out much tougher. Eventually, I got it. It's the political economy of reform. You, if, you, if you don't understand the political economy, you can't get it right. You know, very often, the political economy of bond markets is that one sector is controlled by the Ministry of Finance, one sector by the Central Bank, one sector by the, by the Securities Commission, you know, and one sector by the Ministry of you know, Commerce, etc. And half the time, nobody talks to each other, uh, uh, except in front of World Bank or IMF uh, fellows. Uh, and then, you know, uh, if there's no urgent need to do it, you know, it, it's so much more difficult. And very often, you know, even with the kind of advice that we get from the, you know, uh, Bretton Woods institutions, the people that are not consulted very often is the market itself. The market players are not, not consulted. And so you may be pushing a, a product which the market says, you know, I can't do this because, you know, I, I'm not uh, allowed to participate in the FX market. I'm not allowed to do this. I'm not allowed to do that. So it's a very complex area of how do you deal with this. Now, that's just the, 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 the bond market. But if you don't have a good bond market area, how do you get a benchmark yield curve? If you don't have a benchmark yield curve, how do you do you know, modern risk management? And if you don't have that, how do you, if you don't have proper working dealing rooms, asset liability management in a lot of these banks are just sham. So, but building this is very difficult because you, you need to introduce the foreign comp competition to them. And at the same time, you want to ensure that, you know, you know the domestic banks, you know, will build this very, very well. So, to some extent, you know, gradualism is the right way because you gradually, you, you, you build up this institutional uh, uh, expertise. And, you know, for example, you know, within China, that's essentially what, what is happening. So, the... The, the, but what is the core of the, 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 the second generation reforms? Western economies, you know, have gone through many of these reforms. You already do understand the issue of transparency, accountability, efficiency. But Asian economies have grown up through more or less sort of intervention in markets, right? I mean, and it's it, over the last few years gradually letting go. Now, if you really think through it, the, 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 the crux of the issue ultimately is how do you build a, you know, if, if governance is the major determinant, right? In a modern world which has greater transparency, you know, uh, the mark, you know, investors can move funds, you know, uh, in and out. How do you build the regulatory structure as well as the civil service structure, you know, that will be fully transparent, accountable, and implement distributive justice? without corruption, you know, and have an open debate over policies is a very, very difficult question. And if you, if you, if you read through Asian debates now, that's where the struggle is. You know, example, after the Asian crisis, we all know that the, 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 the government bureaucracies cut all uh, infrastructure projects because, you know, the rules were you, you, you mustn't run a fiscal deficit. So, by doing so, a lot of these large infrastructure you know, investments in countries like Indonesia, you know, Thailand, etc., were cut. Right? And, but after they were cut, 
there was a greater demand about you know, open, openness and transparency. And the capacity to implement this got lost. Right? And the more you talk about anti-corruption, the more the civil service says, yeah, I would not sign, any, sign off any projects on infra, social infrastructure, even if it's necessary, because I'll be accused of corruption. And so a lot of the projects can't get implemented on the ground, and therefore you, know, you, you get some of the repeats of the problems, and, and, and that's, uh, that's a fundamental issue that you know, we, need, we need to deal with. So to a large extent, the, the future progress of Asia to the next level is less policy because most of a lot of Asian uh, uh, policy leaders have been educated in, in the Ivy League and LSE and Oxford Cambridge, etc. So they, they also understand the policy issues quite well. But how do you, you how do you localize those policies into your domestic institutional structure is very tough indeed. And you know you can see some of the within even within you know China, for example, what they call the return turtles, Hai Gui Pai. You know, the, 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 the turtle means that the turtles always come back, right? You know, to, to, the, to their birthplace. You know, their policies that they've recommended have not always been accepted, and the, there's a lot of you know debate and resistance over some of these uh, sort of issues. So that, to me, is, is the real battleground. I mean, and, and, and theory is not just about, you know, uh, sort of neoclassical theory to say you liberalize, that's the right way to go. But institutionally, how do you build the, what I call the property rights infrastructure for a, you can call it a social democratic, you can call it a socialist market economy, whatever, uh, which is, uh, you know, delivers efficiently uh, social justice and efficiency is a key question. Now, the framework... Uh, about this and why I emph emphasize this is to say that once we begin to study the institutional side, we really begin to understand how complex it is. And the complexities in the global world, money drifts to those markets that, off that protect property rights, reduce transactions costs, and are highly transparent. And if you think through about all these three issues, the rule of law, the common law aspect is the link between Hong Kong, London, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, London, New York, Hong Kong, and Singapore. I mean, the most successful uh, uh, financial centers have all these, you know, characteristics, I mean, these three characteristics, right? And there's a good reason for this. So if you really want to build very successful financial centers, you, you know, you, 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 you have to, you know, go that way. And so what I did was to take the FSAs, uh, the, the FSAP's rec uh, recommendations, and I listed down the eight elements, you know, markets about people, property rights, knowledge intensity, standards, codes and rules, processes, structure, institution design, and put up all these elements, and you can see how complex it is. Now, it's very easy to say this is all this, you know, involves building the bond market. But in the bond market, everything is linked to everything else. You know, even in subprime, you know, the, the, the accounting codes apply, the disclosure rules apply, the corporate governance applies, transparency applies. In the people's side, shared values, beliefs, ownership, knowledge, experience, you know, mindset, all these are behavioral aspects that theory actually doesn't, you know, give us a lot. So far, anyway, you know, I, I apologize for my ignorance in that area. But the more I go into the institutional 
sort of side of, of, of development, I realize it's much tougher, much more complex you know, than, than we realize. So, and it's not only that you need to build this domestically, if the Asian market is to integrate like the European market or like the American market, which is de facto the America's market that is more or less integrated, then you need to build interoperability and interconnectivity between different Asian markets. And that's even tougher, right? Because they're very, very you know, we don't have a political will as in the, the, the EU uh, to do this. Uh, and uh, there's huge, you know, disagreements between not just the, 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 the big boys within Asia, but also the small who fear that they, you know, in a network effect of uh, regional integration, uh, the winner will take all. Now, so let me very quickly conclude. I've really taken too much time. I think you know the reason why Asia uses Asia savings is actually intermediated in both US and EU is because of its lack of depth in its financial markets. Its capital markets are just not up, not up to not up to scratch. Pay the lesson for the Asian crisis, and very clearly this needs to be done. But some progress has been done, but it hasn't been it hasn't been uh, enough. How to get there is a very interesting question. I mean, there's no lack of money spent in, in Japan or in Singapore, some of the larger economies, to build their own investment banks. But you name me one sort of strong Asian investment bank. You know, it's, they, you know, they, they, they're not quite there yet. And, and the same thing about pension funds, uh, uh, insurance companies, you know, etc. Now, but the institutional side now needs to be built because there's a, there's a vacuum. Because previously, Asia was young. As it ages, the demand for strong pension, pension you know, sort of funds, etc., will be huge. And if, if, the, if I may you know, sort of be, be, be quite you know, blunt about it, you do not want a repeat of the Japanese experience whereby you have super savers and very little income to spend because the yield on such are very, very low. Right? And if we're not careful, that's situation could be repeated because you know many parts of Asia are not, you know you know are well are, are aging and so we do need to spend time on these you know sort of institutional side of it and and and, and this is where you know uh, uh, you know we, we need to be very very clear so the 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 the, the, bot, the bottom line is that if we, re- we really need to uh, uh, you know to, 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 to get up to speed uh, without sliding back you know institutional development is, is, is crucial. And out of this also, the mindset about financial innovation is very crucial. Because if we don't allow financial innovation, the progress of that institution is going to be very, very, very difficult. Now, you know, the uh, mortgage securitization, for example, I would have thought is a no-brainer, right? Banks have a very fundamental mismatch. And a... Um, uh, a mortgage, secondary mortgage corporation to be able to mobilize the, the, the I mean to, to help uh, uh, reduce the maturity mismatch of the banking system is the right way to go. But we've also seen you know, through the subprime this can be overdone and that's you know, what, what, what the, you're concerned about. So the, 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 the move to the next stage you know, is opening up to markets. Asia probably needs to build its own CDS market 
you know, and, and the infrastructure and the legal reforms will have to be made. And that means the civil service, the bureaucrats within Asia, will have to design, you know, these and put these things in place. Yeah, very, very quickly to sum up. I think, you know, if other things being equal, you know, I'm fairly confident that Asia will catch up, you know, with, with Europe and North America. But the, the bumps are, are, are very likely to be there. Now, it, it also means that they, we will need the, the, the regional cooperation. Actually, I do believe in the flying geese theory. I think, I think it actually explains, you know, sort of uh, organically quite well, uh, you know, how different economies at different stages learn from each other. We should not uh, be too, uh, the decoupling story I don't buy completely. I think that if the U.S. slows, Asia will slow. Uh, and I don't think uh, China, even however fast it's growing, could, is still large enough to carry the growth momentum. Neither is India. And there are many things that could, uh, could, could bump the, the growth path off, as we have seen through the Asian crisis. So let me stop here and be very happy to answer questions. Sorry for you know, talking too long. Well, it's bold in present circumstances to call for the construction of a credit default swap market. Uh, but you may need not, not need to build one of your own because the Americans may have one to spare that they can uh, <laughs> uh, supply to you. Um, can I, I'm going to throw it over the question now, but can I just begin with one, one question of my own, Andrew, which has, been, has struck me quite forcibly from the work that we've both done in China. Is if, if you look at the the way the system in the US or in, in Europe is kept sort of tolerably honest, if you like. Uh, I mean, in present circumstances of crisis, this may seem an exaggeration, but tolerably honest, is really through a whole variety of tensions, both between institutions and within them. I mean, the ones between institutions are obvious. You know, there's regulators who are meant to have a, a slightly tense relationship at least some of the time with the companies they regulate but actually if you look at the a bank uh, itself then it's got a tension with its external auditor and then within the bank probably more importantly there are tensions between the lending officers and the credit guys and between them and the internal auditors and them and the risk managers and it's almost as if you have created a set of Tensions and people kind of argue with each other. And if you talk to a lending officer in a bank, the person he's worried about is not the regulator. He's worried about the credit guy who keeps telling me can't extend. And all of these tensions are, are, are created, if you like, within these institutions. And the process of them all working each other out, working themselves out from day to day, week to week, month to month, you know, most of the time prevents these institutions going completely mad. Now, in China, when you look at it, you, you know, you look at the whole People's Bank system. And as you know, we go there, and sometimes you discover that the bloke you've been dealing with as deputy chairman of the banking regulator is now chairman of Agricultural Bank. And the guy who was the chairman of Agricultural Bank has become deputy governor of the People's Bank, uh, who has become... And the whole... You know, they move around as if this is one system. And the notion of, as it were, creating structures that positively promote tension is something which seems quite alien, that, that that doesn't seem to be easy to do at all. And I wondered whether 
that's a correct analysis, or whether you thought that there was a gradual building of, of institutional competition and institutional tension, because that seems to me to be at the heart of our system. I, I, that's a very, very, very deep question. Um, the idea of uh, bureaucrats, you know, rotating all over the place is not unique to China. As you know, in India, the same thing happens, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 as I recall, you know, they, they can go from state-owned bank to become a bank regulator, you know, a securities regulator, and vice versa. And it's true in you know, a number of other, you know, others. The tension issue is a very, very good one. Uh, the, my immediate sort of thought is that in China, actually, the greatest tension that exists is between cities and the institutional, you know, competition is actually very, very strong. Uh, you know, uh, I think all the bureaucrats know, uh, even though they are bureaucrats, that if they go to Bank A, they are supposed to, you know, perform as, 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 as well as they can. Uh, so the, the, the competition, I, you know, I, 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 the, my sense of why actually Asia, Asian growth has been strong over the last few years also, is a competition. Uh, I mean, if, if you really think through it, for example, Japanese, uh, um, uh, you know, how they succeeded was, you know, the, the you know, Sony would fight against Toshiba versus, you know, all that, right? And today, even within China, the competition actually is, you know, is, 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 is quite strong. And you notice, for example, when Shanghai, you know, had this, you know, seminar on Wujiajui on Shanghai's International Financial Center, Beijing said, we also have ambitions of being, a, you know, internationally, you know, influential financial uh, center and international. So the competition, I think, is the one that creates that tension and drives a lot of that efficiency uh, forward. And increasingly, a lot of them realize also that when they that competition uh, requires greater degree of transparency, and uh, so you know that these things are being put in place. The benchmarks are not quite there. The large banks, for example, realize that they have to meet the Basel requirements. Um, you know, so it, 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 that, that tension it, you know, does exist. Who else would like to uh, come in? Yeah. Um, a man next to the one in red. Yeah. If you can give me your name first, that would be great. Um, hi. My name is Yongkai. I'm from the uh, University of Chicago. Um, I think the question that we have is that, uh, having come from a lecture that talked about asset bubbles, the one that Mr. Davis was earlier. Um, my question is more on China's capital controls. You see. Uh, currently, as it stands right now, China is trying to allow capital to come out through the various schemes I think which you're aware about, like the QDI schemes for the banks and for the fund management companies. And it's precisely because of these capital controls, um, asset bubbles in terms of this real, uh, real estate, in terms of the stock prices, you know, that are building up in China itself. Um, I was just wondering what's your views on China's need to develop these um, outlets to allow its capital control because um, a lot of the investments that Chinese um, these outlets have caused have performed very poorly. For example, like the Sovereign Wealth Fund CIC, they invested in Blackstone and it got literally cut in half. And <laughs> so it's like, that's an understatement. And the point is that, is there a need, as in, I do recognize there's a need to develop uh, the deeper and the financial reform, but the cost to the domestic and to the domestic, the Chinese domestic government and to the domestic retail investors is that they are investing in a world whereby it's not exactly that great for them to invest, they rather invest domestically and create this vicious cycle of asset bubbles. So I'm just trying to see what's your views on that. 
Well, I, you know, I think this is this is where Asia, you know, uh, uh, from from the, uh, the the Asian crisis, that was a real problem. You know, I've I've argued that uh, uh, instinctively, instinctively is not the right word, but the inclination of policymakers within Asia is that we like money coming in, we don't like money going out, right? So traditionally, that's been you know very welcoming to F, F, FDI. You know, then later on, very welcoming to F, F, foreign, you know, uh, portfolio investments, and then you know, very cautious about you know these people you know investing abroad, uh, especially your retail. You know, you, you, you really uh, you need, need to, need to uh, uh, control that because you know there will be losses. But then you think about it. Uh, if you look at the lessons of Japan and, and in Germany, uh, when they became successful, the exchange rate actually went up, right? I mean, you know, the, 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 that, that, that is natural, and then you you must have some mechanism to to, in a sense, to to allow your your uh, domestic investors to diversify their portfolio. Okay. Now, now, how do you do this? This is the, the a major question, uh, and I, I I want to use the Japanese example because I think that was a lesson what not to do. Right? I mean, this is not a criticism. I think that they just got into that situation. You have a very, you know, because you know the, it, it was this traditional uh, cautiousness about uh, investments. You open up the capital account uh, and the exchange rate doubles, uh, and then you say you should now invest abroad. Well, they went invested abroad, right? And then the exchange rate, you know, sort of, uh, you know, revalues again. And lose their share. So the private sector, the households, especially in Japan, completely withdrew, right? And 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 and, and then in, in, you know, then because interest rates were very very low, today as you know, the currencies of, uh, you know, personal view, uh, currencies of, uh, uh, you know, New Zealand and Australia are determined by Mrs. Watanabe, right? Right. The Japanese housewives, you know, uh, undertake the, the carry trade because they need. Whenever the, the yen appreciates, they, they were to, they, the money goes out to buy you know, these two currencies, sometimes on a leverage basis. Uh, and that's why the, 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 the dollar-yen quick lashes. You know. In a sense, if you were to step back from a long historical, that sudden opening up, Japan is still going through that volatility. It's, it's dampening, but it hasn't completely dampened because the institutions and the retail are still you know, sort of Suffering from that, that 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 shock. So to me, I think you know the the, the if you really look, were to sort of look through the Asian experience, I personally think you know the way uh, India did. I mean, it's not perfect, but if you want to open up the stock market, you create a national unit trust, you let them learn a little bit, uh, and then you gradually open up, and then you know when you you're fully ready. You uh, if, you, if you take the, the, the action, you can you know, al allow you know, very innocent uh, uh, investors and, 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 and punch shares, then you get these sharp volatilities that are going on. Uh, and, and so if you, if you say, you know, uh, uh, is, is, is the Chinese market in a, in a, in a bubble? I'm not going to comment on, on, on the exact levels, because I, I don't like to. But if you draw a chart, taking India, uh, Brazil, and uh, China, China one was like this went down, and then woof, it went up. But the Indian one was more gradual. And in fact, the, 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 the fastest one is, is Brazil, right? you know, from, from 
index point of view. Brazil level is in fact higher than you know from India. If you take uh, uh, two or three as the benchmark, you know, it's 100. So the, 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 at the moment, the Chinese market is, uh, uh, you know, has, has dropped. I mean, Dow is dropped more than Dow. Dow. I mean, if you think through it, right? It's, it's dropped, you know, uh, uh, 40, maybe 40, 45 percent from its peak. Uh, so, you know, these, the bubble effects, you know, may or may not can be avoided. But the learning, and maybe part of that learning curve of all society, people, you know, do need to you know, go through this. Uh, but I think, you know, in terms of the policies, you probably need products that actually, uh, how shall I say, uh, lead people uh, gradually to, to, to learn uh, over this period. Uh, and, uh, if I may just very, very quickly say this, you really look through Hong Kong. Where Hong Kong has been very, 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 very strong is, uh, uh, you know, is, is the fact that you have got a few good blue chips that are well globally diversified. And Hong Kong people like to you know, buy these blue chips. And effectively, that becomes their um, uh, uh, pension as well. Whereas, you know, in uh, the other markets, when you lack those kind of very good blue chips, uh, they're punting all kinds of very, you know, chunky companies. And they lose their shirt, and then afterwards, they don't come back anymore. And that, that's, that's what's happened in some markets. So, you know, the, 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 the equity market is very volatile. Nobody's interested in the bond market. A woman in their white. And my name is Jay Rinova from, um, and I'm a LSE graduate. And, and my question is that um, what will be the potential business opportunity for foreign banks to enter the securitization market in Asia as a whole, and especially in China? Because since all the securitization deals are controlled by the Chinese government, and there's a pilot scheme started from the end of 2005. The the um, the, the, the bond market, you know, uh, um, in, in in China is complex because uh, part of it is under the central bank, part of it is under the National Planning Commission, uh, and then uh, who's the other part? Uh, Somebody has the charge of the other part, and and, and trying to you know uh, get a, a Common view. I think the Ministry of Commerce regulates the non-listed uh, companies. Uh, so, you know, you, you need to get coordinated, and it's, it's quite complex negotiating agreement over the right uh, policy to do. But in, in, in my view, that's uh, uh, gradual because, in a sense, uh, uh, what China has recently done is build up the infrastructure very well. The, the China bond clearing company. Very modern infrastructure. Um, the, the, uh, the, the Ministry of Finance has uh, agreed to issue paper uh, on, a, on, a, uh, on a staggered basis, right? Or, you know, the, the, the fiscal side is actually very strong; it doesn't need the money, but it would then issue the, the right maturities so that the benchmark yield curve will now get right. Uh, uh, historically, long bonds. Prices were fixed in China by negotiation between the Ministry of uh, Finance and banks. Uh, today, there's much more, you know, uh, that's been liberalized. So the benchmark yield curve has been established. Once the benchmark yield curve is established, 
then you, at least you can now begin to price the corporate bond market right. But the corporate bond market cannot be built until you really get your rating agencies and all your, your, your laws right. And there's a, a whole gap in the securitization law, right? Um, you know, that, that securitization law is you know, complex to write. And you, then you need to get all the agreements amongst with all, all the other bureaucracies. This is not uncommon, I guess, but you know, uh, these are some of the issues. So once these are set up, uh, the, the, the reason why the, the in fact, I, I mean, you know, this is the, a fact of history. The, the, the Chinese uh, uh, lesson from the bond market was the one that delayed the creation of the bond market. As you recall, in 1992, there was a very famous bond futures market that was developed in China. And the bond futures market uh, collapsed. Uh, it's a classic example of what the, is it, like you're building a derivative before the underlying is sorted, right? Uh, and and that, that bond futures market was completely speculative. And then they collapsed in 1994, and the government closed down that market completely. Uh, and, and that delayed all the developments in the, 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 you know, the, the, the bond market. So there are path-dependent historical reasons why you know, some of this cannot be you know, developed. But I think there's lot of consensus that this is an area that needs to be developed and, and you have to lay the right foundations for it. Um, yes, a woman in front. Can we have the, just wait for the mic because otherwise no one will behind will hear. Uh, hello, Andrew. I'm Monica. Um, I work for Standard Chartered Bank and I used to work in Beijing before I moved to London. Um, when I dealt with the Chinese regulators, you know, including the banking regulators and securities regulators, I always felt the, the really big dilemma, because as a Chinese person, I, I really appreciate and, and understand the needs of Chinese government to protect the local players, because they really want to make sure um, the local players grow really strong in order to compete with the international players before they completely open the market. But on the other hand, as an employee of the foreign bank, we really feel it's extremely difficult to, in order to get a new license, you know, we almost have to apply for a new license for a new product. And sometimes even when we, uh, when we get the license, we found our clients don't have the license to, in order to buy the product. So we really wanted to know what's your view about this. Do you think it's still too, con I mean, controlled too, too, too tight or is it reasonable? Is it going to be um, opened up really fast, faster? Well, I, you know, the, the, the uh, product innovation I mean, uh, this, this is an issue. That's why in my, 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 my lecture I said, you know, Asian regulators has, has a traditional problem. I mean, you know, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, you know, when I was in SFC, we, we don't approve products. We just make sure that the disclosure is done. And uh, if, 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 you know, Bank A wants to issue this product, you know, good luck to them. I mean, that's the way it's done, right? But I think within Asia, as you know, you know, nothing moves un unless the regulators say so. And, and uh, there are historical reasons for this. I'm, I'm not going to say that you can change this overnight. It, the, the, the fundamental issue then is this. You know, if, if you're moving transitionally from a, a, a situation where everything, you know, is regulated, then the, there's this moral hazard because every, every, every person in the public, uh, anything goes wrong, you blame the regulator, right? And so it's a vicious circle. Uh, I'm going to be blamed. I might as well control it, right? 
so, and then you move to a, a new situation whereby everything is kaviramto. But as you know, with kaviramto, it doesn't mean that the seller has no responsibilities, right? And so, if you know, the full disclosure rules require suitability tests, right? And you, then you find that the banks don't have in place these kind of suitability tests. And so products can be sold that are you know, not, uh, uh, you know, not suitable for the public. Uh, and, and then you get you know, uh, blamed and said, how come this is not in the case? So the, 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 the changes are so fast that's going on in China. It's, it's, you know, people are just trying to catch up with the new regulations. I mean, the, 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 you know, if you really look at you know, since 2003, 2004, Number of you know new guidelines have come out because previously there were no there were there were, there were no such regulations, right? And you, you you issue one and suddenly you find whoops this regulation actually you know conflicts with other regulations and you know you know common law jurisdiction is easier because it's uh, you, you send it off for consultation everybody will tell you you know there, there are these you know conflicts then then you amend them uh, and and so gradually the this is what I mean by the, the, the complexity of the second generation reforms. The bureaucracies and the public and the intermediaries will then have to work with each other <coughs> to respond to market forces. Right? Uh, but you know, if, you were, if you do it too fast, then you get these kind of problems that, 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 that occur. Uh, and if you do it too slow, uh, you, you, you stop the, the growth completely. But, you know, the speed in which I think the, the, it, it's coming uh, is much faster, and I think you will, you will, also, you will, you will get the pace. Uh, as a, sorry, yeah. down here. <laughs> Just wait, sorry, wait for the mic, because otherwise people at the back won't hear us. Well, looking at the Chinese banking system, my name is Atharu San yes, yes. from the LSE, and look at the banking system until the late 1990s, there's problem for the banking system, coexistent problem with the banking system was a loss-making state-owned sector. I mean, now the state-owned enterprises as a whole are actually not loss-making. In fact, they're making huge profit. But the thing which is changing and where aging process comes in is in 1998, China introduced, uh, overhauled its social security system. And what we observed last few years is a huge accumulation of social security contributions. And there is no vent for investment of the Social Security Fund. And what has happened, that is, the loss-making enterprise is not a problem, but what we get is huge embezzlement of Social Security Fund. I have particularly in mind the Shanghai scandal, which used to be considered the best-run city in China. And now the, the government has agreed in principle to build an integrated and comprehensive Social Security system which will cover the whole population by 2020. But I'm not sure that it has actually thought the financial counterpart of what actually happens to these social security contributions. Mm. Well, you, you've, you've proved my point, right? You know, you really need to build these institutions because the savings is just growing by the day. Now, it's not, you know, if it grows by the day and all it holds is domestic assets, you're actually concentrating risks. You know, people, people understand this. But how do you do it in a sequenced manner in which you know, the, the, the management then begins to understand? Because previously, a lot of Asian 
uh, pension funds, including, uh, as, as, you, as you know, the, the, the EPF and the uh, CPF in, in, in Singapore, used to have very stringent uh, portfolio controls, right? Saying that you cannot, you know, invest abroad. You know, you have to invest most mostly within domestic uh, government securities. And it was in those days common for them, for the government to issue government securities. Uh, uh, and, and, and as you know, the savings got so large that the return was a significant percent of GDP. So and it, it was that that gave rise to the sovereign wealth fund, right? I Meaning we, we all understand this. Because, you know, it was the savings that drove the, the, the need to get long-term, you know, sort of uh, uh, risk-managed savings for the, the social security funds and pension funds that gave rise to these uh, some you know, wealth funds uh, per se. So in China today, the, the need to build these pension funds and to give them the, uh, uh, the, the proper risk management sort of systems for them to begin to invest abroad is, is, is a work in progress. I'm going to take one more, I think, because I know that in Penang they're on their fourth sundowner by this time, aren't they? So, turn the picture there. Simon Chen, um, how does he graduate? Um, I think um, I would like the two speak. Um, sorry, Sir Davis and so, sorry, Sir Howard and Professor Shang to talk about um, the aspects of advisory work in China that they're particularly proud of in relation to um, Chinese financial reform. And um, also, do you two feel that there are any unfair comments made in the Western media regarding uh, reforms in China? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I think it's important not to um, exaggerate uh, the significance of the advisory councils. I would say that the work that we've done on the advisory Council, uh, at the banking regulator anyway, um, has been primarily to give some uh, backbone um, and some moral support to Liu Ming Kang, who is the chairman of the CBRC, uh, whom I identify as being someone who has a pretty clear vision of where he wants the banking sector to go, but who evidently is not the only voice within the Chinese administration on these issues. And I think that the main value of the International Advisory Board uh, has been to buttress his position from time to time and to push the line that he's been taking with the Chinese leadership. And we typically, at the end of our meetings, after a couple of days, we go and see uh, whether it was used to be Guangzhou or, or Wen Jiabao a couple of times, um, and set out our perception on the progress of reforming the major Chinese banks. So we pressed for write-offs of uh, NPLs, we pressed for recapitalization, we pressed for flotation and for strategic partners, and all of those things have happened. I'm sure they would have happened uh, if we hadn't ever got on the plane, but perhaps they've happened slightly more quickly and in a slightly clearer way uh, because of the support of, uh, of the advisors. But as I say, I wouldn't wish to exaggerate this contribution uh, that much. As for the uh, press commentary, well, I'm slightly, always slightly nervous about um, uh, taking the press and the media as a, as a totality 
I think probably it's fair, and I, and I speak, as I say, as the French say, sous le contrôle de Monsieur Wolfe, who is uh, Blair's. I think that there is a tendency in the Western press to veer from one kind of over-enthusiastic story about China to another very gloomy, corruption-filled financial regime story about China. It tends to be quite difficult to steer a, a course which says, yes, there is quite a lot of corruption in the banking system. Yes, it still is allocating credit on a somewhat formulaic basis. Yes, it still is politically influenced. But nonetheless, it's gradually getting better and the strategic partnerships are gradually of some significance. So I think sometimes you get either uh, awe-inspired stories about you know, just the sheer market cap of these Chinese banks and wow, and, uh, and then on the other hand you get a focus on the sort of micro-level uh, corruption. Um, the best journalists who actually bother to go there report this, I think, perfectly reasonably, but the tendency is sometimes to be feast or famine. Yeah, I, th I think the, uh, you know, the, the China is such a large uh, country and a large system. Uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, uh, good things and bad things happen at the same time. I mean, you know, the, you, you, it's, it's just like describing anything. You know, the, 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 you, if you, you find some, you know, uh, shoddy business, the shoddy business can be found. You know, you can, you can see some institutions that are, you know, doing pretty well and fairly innovative. They also can be found. Um, the, the, the criticisms, I, I, you know, I think people uh, within China, you know, sort of begin to understand now increasingly as, as China progresses. You know, you will be subject to a lot of criticisms. I mean, the, the global media, you know, you know, will, you know, will comment. But uh, uh, to go back, I think uh, generally the general direction of the reforms are very, very clear. How you coordinate that within the different parts of the bureaucracy. Is a very very complex issue, and you know, in, in, in some uh, societies, it's uh, which are smaller, it's easier to coordinate. When you've got very very large bureaucracies, getting those views agreed is a lot of negotiations, and uh, and sometimes, as you can see, it takes you know, getting the right timing and an agreement to do this is very very crucial. So all I'm saying is that you know, uh, a lot of people would wish it to be a bit faster. Uh, an example, uh, people don't, don't understand this, uh, you know, the national treatment is now, now given, but it's only this year that Chinese banks will have the same tax level as foreign banks. Foreign banks had a tax advantage over, over, over domestic banks, and that was the big argument that was going on. I mean, you, know, you have to, you know, if you want national treatment, you have equal tax levels. So these are the, 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 the kind of, uh, like, as, as with all, all economies, there will always be the people who feel, you know, that, uh, you know, nationalist issues need to be concerned. And other people will feel that, you know, an international perspective is right. And, and like all large nations, policies, you know, will, will be subject to these forces. Thank you very much. I think we ought to wind up now. It's very nearly uh, 8 o'clock. And what I think is particularly uh, interesting from Andrew's perspective is to see China set in a broader Asian perspective, which is often not the case, and also to see financial reforms set in a kind of political economy and also behavioral uh, perspective, which I also think is particularly valuable since these two disciplines are often not brought together. So thank you very much for that. Um, it was very interesting indeed. Thank you. Thank you.